Obscure Podcast called Rosenberg Radio kicking in right now. Tonight is going to be an epic podcast as my boy Dennis Brew walks in confidently, author, writer of Imprisoned by Addiction. Thank you so much for being here, bro. It's going to be a treat, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, we're going to dissect his life. We're going to go through the wins, the losses. We're going to overcome right now. A book has been written. You're in for a treat. Obscure Podcast. My boy Dennis Brew, Imprisoned by Addiction. He's going to tell his story tonight. You're in for a treat. Stay tuned. One. Escura Podcast, Cole Rosenberg here, cracking in on another fascinating evening. The podcast today is a little bit different from the norm. Why? I am blessed and honored to have a profound guest with me tonight, Dennis Brew, author and writer of Imprisoned by Addiction. We're going to dial into this. There's a lot of jewels that are going to be coming out of here. There's a lot of life-changing info that you can not only here but apply to your life however you always know how i crack in the show so let me take a moment right now and give a big shout out to the entire crew that's here thank you manny for being so official on the camera big shout out to lou thank you bro looking official on the camera big shout out to charles holding us down making sure everything's looking crisp and of course my boy at jones i popped in in the house thank you so much bro for being here bong 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 we're in for a treat tonight as i said before my guest is dennis brew thank you so much bro I really, really, and if, if, if I were to go back and share how we met and the initiative you took, you know, let me do that. So my Heineken sign broke and Dennis is integral in, you know, repairing stuff like that. So I went and I met you out of the blue. Yeah. You took care of my Heineken sign. And as I was leaving, you asked me, hey, you got so much Heineken gear going. What, what, what do yeah. you do? I share about my podcast and you hand me this book immediately. Yeah. Riveting read. And I was like, I told the crew, I need to get him here to hear your story. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, my friend. So let's dig into this. Imprisoned by Addiction, my story of drug addiction and surviving the county jail. And we're talking about the Passaic County Jail here. Yes. Oh, my God. We're in for a treat. Escura Podcast, my boy, Dennis Brew. Let's crack into this, Dennis. You've definitely gone on a colorful ride to where you are right now. I want to go back to the beginning. Let me ask you, what was the family makeup like when you came onto this gorgeous earth? came from a good family. I came from educated parents. My father was an attorney. My mother was an editor of a newspaper. I'm the youngest of three boys. So like what I, I kind of learned throughout life and in some uh, recovery is that addiction does not as- discriminate, mm. you know? Um, you know what's so funny is on the show, when you say something profound, we call it dropping a jewel. Right out the bat, you just dropped a jewel. Addiction knows no color, no race, no social statue. You're all, everybody's impacted by that. And here you are growing up in a perfect ideal, somewhat American household. Yeah. Three brothers. Yeah. Where are you in the rank of the three? Oldest, middle, or youngest? I'm the youngest. <laughs> were, you, were you the rambunctious youngest? I guess I was the, uh, the black sheep of the family and... Um... My parents were all about grades. From the earliest age I could remember, I, was, I, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to have fun at all costs. Mm. And they were all about grades. And let me tell you, schoolwork was not fun, right? <laughs> so if it wasn't fun, I wanted nothing to do, to with, do with it. it. So I got bad grades, and I was constantly being grounded and punished for my grades. I had my brothers that were older than me I'm 
were all 14 months apart. Okay. Right? So they got their exercise beating me up. <laughs> right? So early in the game, I felt less than physically. I felt less than mentally. Mm. Now, I don't know if this contributed to the factors, but I did not feel like I measured up. Let me ask you, how was your other brothers doing academically at the time? Straight A's. And I was D's and F's. Mm. So um, I just, it didn't feel good. If it didn't feel good, I wanted nothing to do, do with it. it. And if it felt good, I wanted everything to do with it. For instance, after school, my brothers would come home. They go and do their homework immediately. I said, are you crazy? <laughs> we just been locked up for eight hours. Let's do that later. We'll go outside. Let's, let's yeah, go let's, play. Yeah, let's yeah. do something. And, 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 and therein lies like, yeah. and in the 70s, when you got grounded, like when you got grounded to your room for two weeks, there was nothing to do in there. No video games. There was no video games. There was no TV. TV. You know, I still didn't do it. I had all that time to sit there and just do my homework. And what did you do and in that room? Everything but the homework. Everything but the homework. I just sat there. I'd rather just not do it. What was mom's and dad's reaction to your, in a, your lack of motivation academically? Well, they motivated me with wooden spoons and belts <laughs> and, you, you know, you name it. Yeah. Like, pain was, was the motivator. But, like, with all that motivation, I just, I still did not want to do it. Here, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The first drug I ever used was candy, right? Mm. I was a fiend for candy. I committed my first theft. I was young enough that I needed the kitchen chair. I pushed it up against the refrigerator. I stood on the chair, and on top of the refrigerator was a jar. My brother had silver quarters in that jar, right? They were worth more than 25 cents because they yeah, were silver. silver. Yeah. I stole his silver quarters. I went to the store. I bought a 10-pack, right? A 10-pack of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I ate like eight of them and threw the last two. I went home. My brother gave me the beating because yeah. he knew exactly who stole his silver quarters, right? So it was like my first drug. I stole my first, I did my first theft for that. For the candy. And, and here's how it kind of relates to what happened to me with drugs later on in life. Now, candy to me was good. And... So I figured if you got a hold of candy, that's good. We were in the supermarket. My brother hands me this clear rock. It was wintertime. He says, here, Dan, here's some rock candy. Rock candy, right? Yeah. I said, well, candy, like the alarm bells were going off. Connection. I put it, I put it in my mouth. It was disgusting. What I was it? I spit it out. I thought, this candy is supposed to be good. It can't be this bad. I put it back in my mouth. It's still bad. I spit it out again. I, I thought maybe the outer layer was going to wear off of the thing and get sweet, and sweet because, on the inside. because it was supposed to be good. Candy's good. Yeah. I put it back three or four times. I was green. I was so sick. He gave me rock salt for the driveway you, when you <laughs> melt the ice, right? But that so parallels what happened to me later on in life when I started using drugs. I had a lot of fun. And then what happened was when it wasn't so fun, I still had that thought that, well, it's supposed to be fun. It's not fun right now, but it's supposed to be fun. Gonna, so I'm going to keep going to and going turn and going. It into fun. So, you know, th those kind of things parallel. What I love about what you just shared, and I'm going to ask you this question before I make this comment. If you could, looking back, can you remember 
the first time you made the association with um, not wanting to do homework and just going for the fun stuff. Can you remember what it was? Because it seems ironic that you come from an established family where the other brothers who are older, who are setting examples, are doing their work, they're following mom and dad's protocol and doing their work. So when was it that you were like, you know what, screw this? I remember I was in kindergarten and my mother brought, bought me these ugly Buster Brown shoes, right? <laughs> and I had a pair of red Converse sneakers. Oh, those were high? Right? Yeah, they were. I was, I was in kindergarten. I wanted to wear those sneakers to school. And she said, you can't wear those sneakers to school. So we had show and tell. And I remember I, I disguised, I put my sneakers in this box that was supposed to be a grill, like a barbecue grill, one of them cheap ones. Yeah, in the 70s. yeah, yeah. And I was going to sneak my sneakers to school and put them on. My mother caught me. Dude, you're a gangster on the box. <laughs> what did she do? She beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 my mother had no... She had no issue with smacking me, yeah. right? And I was scared to death. My mother was professional at it. And my father, my father could just, I don't know what's going on with the kids nowadays, but my father could just give me a look. And, that would, and you stopped. Whatever yeah. it was you were doing, you stopped. Immediately. Yeah. Wow, Dennis. It is. And, you know, I know we're going to be in for a treat because the fact that you are so aware now of those small idiosyncrasies that led you down this path from such a young age. The connection with the sweetness for candy, the rebel of not being, you know, conforming to the, the request of the parent, and really, truly doing things outside the box right from the get-go. Yeah. No, I, I, there's, there's a lot of strength in that because you gotta be either stupid or confident to be moving at that pace at that young. So I salute you for sharing that. Let's fast forward a little bit. So now the grades are poor. You're, 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 you're going into elementary and high school. The connection about candy and sweets are still there. How was that transition? So my father was always a pot smoker, right? And as a young kid, I could always remember the smell of weed. Mm. And he said it was Havana tobacco, right? <laughs> and I thought it was like a cigar or something. I mean, I could remember riding in the middle of him and his friend in the Cadillac. Yeah. And, and watching the bowl get passed between him. The, the Savannah tobacco. And, and the other, the Savannah tobacco. So somewhere in there around, I don't know, I, I don't know when I understood what it was, but my father died when he was 32 years old. I was 12 years old. He died um, tragically as a result of quaaludes and alcohol in an Atlantic City hotel. That was an accident. Like, I guess Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, they yeah. all died choking on their vomit. Basically oh. passed out okay. in a hotel room and choked, choked to death. And yeah. uh, at the time, uh, we were told it was a heart attack. So we didn't know that that was the cause. It was maybe five, six years later we found out exactly what happened. But um, so one day, about a month after my father died, my brothers were looking through his dresser drawers and they came up with a, like a half ounce of weed. They said, come on, Dan, let's try it. I remember my reaction like it was yesterday. I said, no way, that's drugs. If you, I thought if you smoked a joint, you would die, right? <laughs> I really did. I remember being so against it, like, whoa. Well, they tried it. Hold that thought. Escura Podcast. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. I want to pick up on that experience. 
because it's so profound that you are the one that said no. We're going to take a quick break. My boy, Dennis Brew, imprisoned by addiction. We're taking a stroll through his life right now. You're in for a treat. Stay tuned. One. Esquire Podcast here. Squirrel Rosenberg kicking in it with my boy, Dennis Brew. We're taking a very delicate stroll through your life because I know what's about to happen. I can already tell how vulnerable you are. And I want my guests to realize that what you're hearing from Dennis is life-changing info. And you don't have to make the same mistake. You know, you maybe not be as fortunate as him when, he, when at the outcome, but the fact that we're dissecting his life right now, you're in for a treat. So before I do that, Dennis, um, it's always mandatory. I have a green bottle right here. Could you reach that beautiful refrigerator? I have some non-alcoholic beers right there. Heineken just came out with a 0.0. So you can have one of those. I'll have one of mine perfect, and I have the perfect Heineken opener here. Let's crack this open. Let me that. Perfect. We are going to crack into this. As a matter of fact, when you hear the... the um, when you hear me open these beers through the microphone, it sounds just like an ASR commercial. You know, it's just crystal clear. <sighs> nice. Dennis, let's pick up from Finding the Pot. As a matter of fact, I got to close the refrigerator door for me. Oh. Thank you. You the bar? Yeah. <laughs> 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 you were No, thank you. So as we were getting ready to dissect this, so dad left the weed. Well, passed yeah. away and they found your, brother, your brothers and you guys found the weed. They take it and go, Dennis, let's try this. Your response was, no way. That's drugs. I, I thought you smoke a joint and die. One joint, you're out of here. I, I didn't know. So did they smoke? They did. And the next day, I saw they got up and got dressed for school. <laughs> they weren't dead. And I was all in. I saw that they weren't dead, and I was all in. And what happened that day is I just threw a whole bunch of gasoline on a fire of addiction that was burning in it's me already. That day, wow, uh, changed a lot. Eskew our podcast called Rosenberg. I'm going to ask you to look into the main camera and say that again. That day, what happened? I just threw a bunch of gasoline on a fire of addiction that was burning already in me mm. prior to that. Do you remember um, the first time you smoked weed? Yes. What was that experience like for you? I rode my bike all around town, <laughs> you know, <laughs> laughing and, and thinking that I had a great time. So, I had a great time for a long time. So now that association of fun and weed locked in. Yeah. Well, and there was acceptance. See, I was the kid that hung around with the older kids for acceptance, right? And guess what? I was the kid that really didn't like the taste of beer, but we all played drinking games. We played games like quarters. You bounce a quarter into a shot glass. Yeah. And then you get it in a shot glass, you tell who to drink. Everybody picked on me because oh. I was the youngest, right? Mm. I was like their entertainment. They would get me drunk and drop me up off in the middle of town, and I really didn't like it. And what age are you at this time? 12, 13 years old. Wow. So I really didn't like it, but I wanted that acceptance of the older kids, and so I did it. I did, I did things that I didn't want to do for the acceptance. Do you think the fact that your dad is no longer in the picture kind of fueled because you mentioned that the dad yes. your dad had that eye yeah yeah my father like i said he would just look at you and you stopped whatever it was that you were doing and being beat up by my older brothers constantly there was an age that i got to where my brothers hit harder than my mother and as soon as that happened there was there was no more rules for me as far as i was concerned okay she would ground me or whatever and I just go out because uh, looking back did you think the loss of your father impacted your mom 
I'm sure it did. It, it, it impacted the family, and it impacted my rebellion mm. when she brought different guys into the house. And I, my favorite line was, you know, my father, you know, telling me what to do. So I was, you know, I was very uh, rebellious. You go through this process, and now you're in high school. Did the grades attitude change in high school? No. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. And uh, I sold weed in high school, and uh, so that makes you kind of popular. When you go to a Catholic school, Catholic school costs money. Yeah. Private and education. So, so, which translates into the kids having money, mm. which was kind of good for the business that I was in is selling weed. Right. But uh, it... You know, I was popular. Me and my brothers had the school locked down on. Uh, Larry was in transportation, and me and Mike were in dis distribution. distribution. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. We used to drink in the woods a lot. You know, bonfires in the woods. Right, and right, right. And and that that was like the root of the problem to what happened later on because I had so much fun when I started switching drugs, and they weren't as fun. I had this thing, I think they call it euphoric recall, okay. where you can only remember the good times and you mm. never remember the bad times. Euphoric recall. Euphoric recall. So I probably used 20 years after it was no longer fun and it was just a nightmare. Because you're trying to get back that euphoria. Yeah, I think it's gonna happen somehow. And, and the worst days, the worst days, because. You know, I, I, I did cocaine when I was 16 for the first time. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but I realized at the end of the game, you started really early. Yeah. When was the transition from weed to... What 16. Was, 16. Co cocaine, 16. Do you and, remember uh, the first time you tried cocaine? Oh, yeah. I went to a Stevie Ray Vaughan concert, <laughs> Miller Time concerts at the pier. Yeah. We took a limo there, and my middle brother said, here, Dan, you've got to try this. And I remember uh, I wanted more, but he wouldn't give me any more. I was pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that, um, you know, I, I, was, I was anticipating hearing that, just like with the weed, you said, oh, that's going to kill you. But I, you, I didn't hesitate on that one. Hesitate at all. Mm -hmm. So you tried Coke for the first time. Because now your reference is weed, correct? Yep. What was that difference like? I thought I had found what I was looking for my whole life. You know, I talk a mile a minute, and uh, it brought me out of myself. And, mm. uh, I discovered Washington Heights. <laughs> oh, my God. That will do it to you. And, uh, so that's where you would go to? Many trips over to the GWB, bridge. GWB, yeah. GWB bridge, and uh, I think it was $4 then. But, uh, wow. But it, uh, you know, it, it was short-lived. I think it worked for me for about six months. Why you did know, you? So you, you graduated from Coke to something else? Yeah, for through my 20s, it was all cocaine and crack. Okay, so let's slow down real quick. So now through high school, 16, you graduated your... No, I didn't graduate. No, I dropped out senior year. Why? I always got... I, I always passed by the skin of my teeth every year. And senior year, though, I had straight Fs across the board. I wasn't interested in school. My father had died, and my uncle had owned a sign company. And he employed me on the, my grandfather owned the sign company. I'm a third generation sign guy. Mm. Okay. So I worked for my grandfather in the summers. Then my uncle, 
who liked to smoke pot with us, yeah. which I thought was the greatest thing in the world, to smoke pot with your uncle at yeah. work. Yeah. Um, he, he took me under his wing and taught me to trade. And by the time I was ready to leave high school, you were ready. my brothers were going to college. And I found out that one of the employees that worked for my uncle was making $400 a week. And I said, I said, $400 a week. If I can make $400 a week, screw college. I would, I would be, I, I, I didn't want to go to college. Yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to work in the sign trade. So, um, my mother told me one day, I, I was out of the house at 16, right? Junior year of high school, I was out of the house. Where I were you living? I, I worked weekends for my grandfather or my uncle in summers for them. And I rented a room from a friend of mine's mother. And I still so got, you know, I still got to school. So you were a full-fledged adult at 16? Pretty much. Wow. So here you are working for <laughs> grandfather, your uncle. Uncle is mad cool because we were smoking weed together. But yeah. you're still working, making money. When did the transition into harder stuff come into play? If you can remember. I'm thinking, I'm thinking by the time I was 17, I was smoking crack. Why? Because yeah. crack had a stigma from back then. Well, when I first started smoking crack, crack didn't come out yet. Crack was just on the verge of coming out and it was freebase. Okay. And it didn't have all the chemicals and... But it was a complicated process, and I remember I was probably smoking cocaine for mm. less than a year when all of a sudden they said, there's this crack, you can buy it, it's, it's already done. And I didn't have to worry, usually I'd have somebody do it for me, yeah, and yeah. then I couldn't do any more. So uh, as soon as that came, uh, became available, then uh, the gloves were off. And this is early 20s. No, this is 17. Still your teens. Still, still my teens because my brother Mike was involved with it, with, with myself also. Okay. And he, he said, I'm going into the Army. I'm going into four basic training, and uh, I can't do this because he, he flunked out of college. Okay. Behind smoking crack. So when he graduated from basic training, my grandfather and myself went down there and saw him, and he looked like he was disciplined. So I thought, clean. clean and disciplined. So I thought, well, that's my answer. I'm okay. going to go in and it's going to work for me. And it worked as long as I was in basic training for 13 <laughs> weeks. But when I got out, I was running around in Washington Heights with camouflage uh, clothes yeah, yeah, on, yeah. you know, with stories that I'm going to see at college, a uh, uh, army buddy. So um, I met a girl and uh, I was married with two kids at 19. Screw a podcast called Rosenberg. It's amazing the journey you've been through. I got to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to pick up on because one of the questions been really haunting me is you must have been a functional addict, not the typical addict that we saw out here because you were holding down jobs, you know. So let's take a quick break, come back, let's pick up on that. And then I want to transition to when you got locked up. Okay. Screw a podcast. My boy, Dennis Brew, imprisoned by addiction. Stay tuned. One. Screw our podcast, Cole Rosenberg here, kicking in with that. I, I don't want to use the word entertaining, because it is entertaining, actually. But it's also fascinating, the details, the awareness. And I know you have that ability now because you can look back at these stories and realize when that catalyst created this movement. So thank you so much for doing that. And for all the guests that are watching this show right now, listen carefully, because you don't have to throw that gasoline of fire on the addiction that's burning inside of you if you know you're prone for that. You know, this is one of the takeaways I got from your story. So to let everybody can follow up where we are, 
you're 19, forget college, forget high school, did go to the army for a brief stint. Yep. However, the drug addiction was still there. Yeah. You now met a w woman who is your wife. Yep. What's her name? Debbie. Debbie. What was that interaction? Where, where did you meet Debbie, by the way? She was uh, one of the kids that worked at my uncle's sign shop. It was his sister. So, <laughs> so uh, I met her. He went into the Army. He, he went in ahead of me, like two weeks ahead of me. We were supposed to go together, but he went two weeks. So his mother said, hey, Eddie's gone. You, can you paint my uh, living room? And then, you know, yeah, I got with go. his sister. So. <laughs> so she wasn't using? No, she never did. She knew you used? Yeah. And she was okay with that? No, not really. But what would happen, you know, we, we got married uh, very shortly thereafter. Uh, she, you know, it was a shotgun wedding. Any like kids? they like to say. Two. What are the names? Two kids, Ashley and Janice. Okay. And. Um, so that should have probably settled you down a little bit now. Yeah, it did. When I got married, I remember I went to go out with my friends and she said, you're married now. You don't have any friends. <laughs> right? She said that. And I said, oh, okay. And I, I probably spent a couple of years working 80, 90 hours a week, one day off a month, um, and just work, work, work. And uh, right around the age of 21, right around when I can get into bars, I said, I'm going out. Mm. And that's that. And that kind of, I took off from my addiction again. And what would happen a lot of times, I get paid on Friday and I'd show up on Sunday. And this is before cell phones, so. She didn't know we should get in touch with you. Yeah, she didn't know what, what happened. And we needed the money for rent and everything else. Yeah. And I'd, I'd show up with 10 cents in my pocket. And it would happen like every three months. And then slowly it just started happening more and more. And after about six years, she had had about enough. Yeah. You know, I went into a couple long-term, six-month rehabs, you know, and I, I would get out. And the first day out after six months, I would, I would use. Let me ask you this. Do you remember, okay, first, the move to rehab for the first time, that was her suggestion, correct? The actual first time is, in order for me to leave high school, your parents had to sign you out. So my mother said to me, I will sign you out of school if you go somewhere with me tomorrow. And you know what I heard? I will sign you out of school. I don't care where you take me tomorrow. You're getting me out of here? Let's go. Let's go. She took me to an outpatient drug rehab program. You know, that's where she took me. Yeah. And that was my first introduction to any kind of recovery or any any. What was that experience time. like? Well, it, it kind of woke me up, and I, I was doing pretty good. I, I stayed clean for 89 days. Mm. Worked for my uncle full time. My brother was getting clean, too. And uh, we got our paychecks one Friday, and he pulled out a joint and said, come on, Dan, let's try it. I said, what are you doing? I thought we were clean. He says, oh, I, I, I smoked pot last week. And as addicts, we don't need a whole lot of prompting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember I smoked a joint, and I remember um, getting really high but feeling really uncomfortable and feeling like, why did I just do that? Mm, especially after being clean for so long. Yeah. And, it, and then it started a 20-year battle of, like, coming in and out of detoxes, rehabs, long-term programs, short-term programs, trying to stop losing my marriage, trying to move all over the country thinking that Washington Heights was the problem. And if I could just go to California, 
maybe that would uh, solve the problem. So you moved to Cali? I moved to California. By yourself or with the fam? My, my brother lived out there, and he worked in the sign business too, and we were going to start a sign business together. Mm-hmm. So I brought a van out there with some tools, and what that turned into is uh, another relapse and uh because the drug was still there the truck the truck was uh stolen uh because i was in a wrong area and uh my brother came back to new jersey and i ended up homeless in california living on the railroad tracks is there any story looking back that you can remember about the the california trip and the california stay that when i first started writing the first story i wrote i called it Fingers, fingers, fingers was the title of the story. And uh, in this area of Long Beach, California, there was uh, some railroad tracks and it was a very desolate looking place. Uh, If the police came down the street and got out of their cars, the first thing they did was shoot their guns in the air. It was an open air drug market. Okay. And uh, I worked for one of the dealers selling crack to people driving by. To cover your habit. To cover my habit. And uh, I got a job with a sign company after about four or five months. I saw a guy, he would uh, pay me in beer. He had a bar tab. <laughs> and we would go drink at, 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 a, at a bar. And at the end of the day, he would give me $20. And I'd go down to the track, smoke $20 with a crack. So anyhow, this dealer that I used to deal with, the Mexican guy, Sal and Tony, they were two brothers. They said to me, uh, one day I said, hey, can you spot me a nickel? And he says, uh, hold on a minute. He came back with a stick, a stick about this long, about that wide, about that thick. And he grabbed my hand. He held my fingers like this. He took the stick. And I said, I understood his Spanish. Yeah. That he was going to hit my fingers like this with Ooh. a stick. Ooh. And I said, you're going to hit my fingers with that stick? And he said, yeah. And I said, and you're going to give me a nickel? He said, yeah. A nickel is five dollars worth of crack. Yeah. And I said, for free? And he said, Yeah. So I put my hand out like this. I turned away and he whacked my fingers. I put my hand out. He gave me a nickel of crack. I went in the back. Ten minutes later I came back out. I said again. He said, Yeah. I held the other hand out. Are you I turned sick? the other way. He hit my thing. I smoked a hundred dollars worth of crack a night <laughs> for like a month. Listen, I was missing half of my fingernails, and all the tips of my fingernails were black. And I was happy. I was happy that this guy would give me the stuff because in my mind, I thought, this is only pain. I'm not going to die from getting my fingers whacked. And that's just how bad I wanted that crack. Wow. You know, and it was, uh, it was a nightmare. I know this is the buildup. And the reason why I took this slow journey to here is because I know when we dig into this, it's going to be a treat. Because I can, the detail you're sharing with me right now, and when I did read through this book, the details that you have here from everything was amazing. Wow. California, you're back to Jersey. Back to Jersey. I uh, tried heroin for the first time. And uh, it was, uh, I was 30 years old from 30 to 37. You know, I always had a lot of motor vehicle issues because I never paid tickets. Who would? Who, who, who would does, pay? Who it was either, you know, get high or pay a ticket. Yeah, There's no ticket. way. Yeah. So. Can I, can I slow you down and ask yeah. you, you knew the danger of heroin. 
I did, and I thought that was almost the same type of feeling as that pot in the very beginning. Like, you try heroin, it's a wrap. And one day I was working at a sign company in Connecticut, and I knew one of the workers there used heroin. One day I just woke up and said, I'm going to try it today. Are you serious? I did. I woke up, I said, I'm going to try it today. So I said, here's some money for you, and here's some money for me. So, like, he was more than willing. Yeah. And I tried it, and I remember I threw up. I got so sick. Did you shoot it, snort it? Snorted it. And I put it down. I, I never tried it again for maybe another year, and then there was in a situation I was smoking crack, and, and uh, with crack, it's such a up that uh, somebody offered some heroin to calm you down a little bit, and I used that combination for a little while. And then that's called speeding. Uh, speedball, yeah. basically. So then uh, one day I couldn't get the crack, and I I felt the full effects of the heroin withdrawal. With, no, the heroin high oh, without the with cocaine. Okay. And 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 I could I could run through eight hundred dollars in in a day with crack. And I tried this little ten dollar bag, and I was high all day. And I thought. And guess what? I didn't die. I didn't feel like I had had pain pills before, you know, and I kind of liked the high of pain pills. Okay. And then all of a sudden I realized that in my mind, heroin really wasn't that much worse than a pain pill. Mm. And for $10 a day, I, Cheaper. Could, I could use. But that plan kind of backfired when you build a tolerance and all of a sudden you got a big habit running around and it's costing you more and more money every day. I never really uh, broke the law other than driving with a suspended license, this and that, but um, with the heroin, the gloves came off, and I thought that, um, I thought my problem was I just didn't have enough money. If I had enough money, I, I don't really have a problem. I really thought that. Yeah, true. And so in 1998, I was working, and I fell 40 feet four stories on a job. I was in a crane and the basket that I was in broke off the end of the crane, and uh, which led to a lawsuit, which led to a bunch of money. And I ran through that money, a lot of money in just a couple months. And in that couple months built a monster heroin havoc, habits. Wow, wow, wow. So wow. when the drugs ran out, I was desperate. And then I started committing crimes and started going to jail. SQR podcast called Rosenberg. Wow. And this is where we're here now. Yeah. We've dissected Dennis's journey to right now. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back in. And I want you to tell me, because it seems odd that you had all this money managed right. You could probably still be doing all the drugs you want and still be good to go. But forget managing money. You were just yeah. doing the drugs. And now we're going to stealing and robbing. And that's what got us into the Passaic County Jail. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to go into that journey and surviving the Passaic County Jail. And once we're done, Dennis is going to do a five to three minute read of, one, of an excerpt in his book so you can understand what's here and you can pick the book up and get a, get a little bit of taste of everything. SQR podcast called Rosenberg, Dennis Brew, imprisoned by addiction. We're taking a stroll through his life right now and we're going to take a break, come back and pick up on what happened to get him into the Passaic County Jail system. Stay tuned. One. great journey perfect fingers fingers you say fingers fingers and so i think that's why they kept doing it 
They kept doing it, they, both of the brothers, right? So there would be a line of people waiting to buy crack, and I'd cut the front of the line, I'd walk up, and they knew that you know, he had the stick ready, and I'd just go like this, and he'd fucking whack it. People would go like, holy shit, what the hell? Or you'd see somebody outside doing, hey, you got something? I said, oh, you want a nickel? Come on. Nobody would do that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's only pain. So listen, how it ended, last time it ended, my fingers hurt so bad, I started cheating. I started putting one finger more than the rest, so it protected four, but all that force was directed so So one day, he won't hit me. He won't hit me with a stick. And I'm Johnson. I'm like, come on. So that day, he come up with a sledgehammer hammer. Oh, oh hell no. Right? And that's what I said for about an hour. I said, hell no. No, no. <laughs> he says, a dime. He says, now listen, when he hit me with a stun gun, it was a dime, right? And I think the batteries were kind of low. So I was like, I was, I was like, moving my face a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't like you see on TV where they go. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick and Morty. Funny how. Then he wanted to shock my balls with it for twenty. I said, that's where I draw a line. <laughs> for twenty bucks, no. So anyhow, so after an hour, this guy, he won't give it to me, right? So finally, I'm like, I said, fuck it. That's those two words always preceded every fucking time. Fuck it, I said. So I held my thumb out, my right thumb. I looked the other way. No, first time ever I looked. And he fucking came down with that thing. He hit me on the thumb. And as he hit me, I went straight down on my knees, straight to my forehead in the dirt. I was holding my thumb. I was moaning. Oh. And all I could hear was the brothers dancing around me, <laughs> laughing, right? Finally, like, get it together. He won't give me the dime. Uh, he says I pulled away. Oh. I'm like, are you kidding me? So there's a guy in there, there was, there was murders back there, there's girls getting strangled, people getting shot, over, over $3 the one guy shot. So anyhow, the one guy, the crazy guy in there, right, he's always walking around with a gun. I'm bugging him now, I'm like, here's my time, where's my time? He says, yo, wait, oh, tu no escucha, vamonos, he's saying, hey, wait, you, you don't listen, get out. So now I go outside the gate, now I'm going, zap, zap, guy shot through the gate. Over my head, right? I start hauling ass. All right, I got the point. Sal come out and said, wait up. They used to call me wait up. He said, he gave me the dime. I walked down the tracks, smoking. That's the last time he ever hit my thumbs because a month later I was in San Diego with my fingers wrapped around a Mercedes Benz that was mine and I could see Black marks on my nails or blood blisters were faded. I was working at a sign company. I was living in a house with some chick with jacuzzi. I had to take <laughs> one for the team for that, but yeah, that, but was, like, that was it. That was Ooh, crazy. Wow. That's the first story I ever wrote was fingers when I sat That's where fingers came from. Fingers, yeah. Oh wow. Guys, let me know when you're speeding. Screw Up Podcast, Cole Rosenberg here. You know, we're getting ready to get into the fourth and the final segment with my guest, Dennis Brew, author, writer of Imprisoned by Addiction. And we have definitely slowed things down because the anecdotes, the curveballs, the detail to attention that you've shared with us, thank you, my friend. I salute you for that. The beating on the fingers, everything is it's really, I can sense the tangibility of the struggle to become clean. You know, and as we navigated these waters, we left off where you came back to Jersey. And this is when life kind of changed. Yeah. Let's talk about that. 
you got back to Jersey, you were still addicted to heroin, crack. Yeah. What do you do? Well, I, I... No income. Yeah, I became homeless. And when you're homeless and you're a heroin addict, when you're withdrawn from heroin, it can be 80 degrees outside and you're freezing cold. Mm. It's just one of the symptoms of withdrawal. And so I was homeless, I was desperate. People would leave their cars running at 7-Eleven or Quick I do that. Check. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. So I wasn't a sophisticated car thief. I would just jump in the car and I would take it. Mostly first, first thing I always did, crank the heat in the car. It was freezing and I needed the car to hustle and go places and steal things. But it's a stolen car. Yeah, it's a stolen car. And you know what? I was so wrapped up on right here, right now, that every time I got caught with one, it wasn't until they were pulling me out of the car that I really understood the gravity that this is not good. Slow down. You tried to sneak something by me right there. You said, they tried to pull me out of one. How many cars have you, did you steal? I stole, I stole many cars. I mean, I, I got many cars and I got caught with four cars. So I got caught with one in Jersey City. I did five weeks in Hudson County Jail. I got out. Three weeks later, I got caught with another one in Passaic County. I accepted probation. They were going to let me go for probation. And they said, well, you have another charge in Hudson County. I said, I'm not guilty of that one. I just want to get out of there. <laughs> You're the they judge. let me go. Wow. I got caught with another one. They sentenced me to three years in state prison. I got out of that. So I, I, I don't want to skip through that process yeah. because I'm pretty sure some revealing things happened through that journey. You know, because number one, you're stealing cars back to back, so you're not learning the lesson. No. You go to state prison. Was that a reality check for you? Yes, it was. But it, Cause no, you it, know, like when I first started going to jail, I'm a kid from the suburbs. I don't know anything about what jail is Lifestyle about. of jail, yeah. And what happened was I started to get institutionalized to where it was comfortable for me. It was the only place I got respect was in jail. When you're standing in front of McDonald's, homeless, looking like a bum that hasn't showered in three weeks, asking people for a dollar for a cheeseburger after you just ate out of the dumpster, you tend not to get any respect and mm -hmm. you have very little respect for yourself. When I, every time I went to jail, I got clean. I worked out, I got big, I got some respect. Mm. And all I had was just a small place to manage. I had, you know, I could manage that. I couldn't manage my life outside in society. It was too much with the addiction. <clears throat> so when, when I got out the last time, I, I came back on parole and I did everything that I needed to do. I met a beautiful girl. I was dabbling in pain pills. They were allowed on parole because it was a prescription. And I said to myself, you got to stop this because this girl is the greatest thing ever. And I did for a couple months. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to make it better. It's just, I'm, I'm not going to use, I'm just going to enjoy the time with her better if I use some pills. And that ended up blowing up in my face, and uh, I lost that relationship. <clears throat> and uh, ended up 
going off the deep end and doing eight months in the Passaic County Jail. Which is what inspired that, this book. This book picks up in that particular particular arrest of losing her, going downhill, getting caught in my fourth stolen car, facing 10 years. So they have extended term in New Jersey. If you get convicted of the same felony three times, they can double the sentence. Because you don't learn. I was looking at five, so now I was looking at 10. I guess my father being an attorney must have, his spirit must have channeled through me. Yeah. And this is how I know that God is playing a role in my life. Nobody does prison on the third car and gets probation on a fourth car, which is exactly what happened for me. Wow. And I've been basically clean ever since. So let's slow this down because you dropped a couple of jewels right in between that statement that I don't want, I don't want to miss it. And I just want to reiterate it for my guest. It was because of a woman that initiated you to become clean in the first place. Yeah. However, you weren't disciplined enough to stay clean and you lost that woman because of that. Yes. And because of that, you now go off the deep end. Yeah. Steal a fourth car. Where did you get pulled over? Fourth car. Fourth and final car. Let's see. You remember where you were? Yeah. You yeah, know, I, was, I was County. I was uh, on Lower Notch Road over here <laughs> on on Route 46, wrestling yeah. with a cop, trying to run. I ran the car out of gas and came up with a brilliant idea at three o'clock in the morning. That it was, I, I saw a house across the street, all the lights were on, and there was four cars in the driveway. I thought it was the day after New Year's. I thought maybe they were still partying or something. I made the decision to knock on somebody's door at three o'clock in the morning. And when I woke the woman up, she was kind of pissed off. I said, uh, is the gas station up that way? I wasn't quite sure where I was. She said, yeah, it's up at the top of the hill. I said, can you call me a taxi? And she was pretty aggravated. Of course. And I had just bought a pair of black gloves and a black hat. I didn't have any idea of what I looked like at 3 o'clock in the morning with a black gloves and black hat <laughs> knocking on somebody's door. This is the stupidity. This is the stupidity comes with that kind of behavior. She said she would. She called the police instead. Ugh. And uh, there's a story to it, but in the end, uh, I got arrested with my fourth car and uh, entered the county jail again. So you're now in Passaic County Jail. Yeah. The book is Surviving the County Jail. The first title to this book before it was published was the white man's guide for surviving the Passaic <laughs> County Jail. For real. That was, the, that was the title. Because let me tell you something. I, I grew up in the suburbs, right? I never knew what it was like to be a minority. Mm. I had no idea. Yeah. You don't, just don't know. But huh? let me tell you something. I went into Passaic County Jail for the first time in my life. I was the minority. Because I was going to ask you, what, what was the dynamics in the jail? Because I remember in your book, there's a lot of references to race and how people were separated and crucial. What was that like? Well, you know, for myself, the more time I spent in jail, the more people I got to know. And I didn't feel, I mean, the, the races, I, I didn't feel a, a big divide. Like, I had friends that were black. I had friends that were Spanish, mm. tight friends that were in jail. I had friends that were like from Yugoslavia and stuff like that, that played professional soccer in Europe. And stuff. Yeah. But um, how, how I got comfortable there is I played a lot of poker. We play for 
honey buns yeah. and and all kind of stuff like that and when you're playing with guys we would play 36 hours straight i mean that's the the addict like without the drugs we would get our commissary and people would it would be the morning the next morning people would be getting up for breakfast we're still playing six seven guys so you're playing that kind of hours and, and some of the more respected guys in the in the cell are playing in that game so you know you get to know them pretty good mm. and you know the best thing you can do is just work out. Looking back, and you mentioned this before because your stint in, um, in, the, in the state prison, you said that's when you were clean, you were eating well, you were working out, and you were structured. You were able yeah. to manage that little cell. In the county jail, it seems like you found that same structure. Yeah. And you thrived underneath that structure. Yeah. Isn't it ironic? Yeah. Because look what mom and dad were trying to create, the same structure that you rebelled on from the get-go. It was, the, the problem was, how was I going to be disciplined without somebody telling me what to do? Score Rosenberg podcast, look into that camera and repeat that, my friend. How was I going to be disciplined without somebody telling me what to do and how to live? And, and there's a story about that. The last violation I've ever had, the judge that gave me the four years probation, the break of a lifetime. Yeah. They let me out and I had to come back for sentencing. Bottom line is I gave him two dirty urines and he brought me back into the courtroom. The woman that was representing me, the attorney, said, don't worry about it, they're gonna reinstate your probation. Don't do it anymore. I said, okay, I won't. So I go into the courtroom and here's the judge that gave me the break. He said, Mr. Brew, I remember you. He says, you're the guy with the business and the kids and had to get out of here. And he says, you're back at my courtroom. He says. We're going to reinstate you. He says, give me one good reason why I shouldn't lock you up right now. And I was not prepared for that question. <laughs> That's a very heavy question. I, I started stuttering. I started, uh, uh, I, you know what I said to him? I said, I don't do well when I'm not under supervision because probation hadn't started when I had those stories. So he says, what do you want, probation to live with you in your house? <laughs> And it, people were snickering in the courtroom and yeah. everything else, but you know it was true. He says, when you come back into my courtroom, he says, which I have no doubt in my mind that you will, he says, I don't want you to open your mouth, and I'm going to give you the four years that you're going to get in prison, and with your record, you're going to do every day of it. Mm. I have not used since that day. What was the name of that judge? Judge Redden. I know that judge. And I'm blessed today to be raising our grandson my wife and I the woman that you met that dumped me that I went off the deep end she's now my wife so what's that, her name Elena wow 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 it is so amazing that you brought that back around because yeah. you know what's so funny I'm going through this it's like a movie that I'm watching talking to you know and I'm saying to myself please let that lady come back in the picture while you were telling me that she said yeah, screw yeah. you in my mind I'm like I'd want that lady to come back into the picture and she's back in a photo and she's now because of that you've now here's the miracle wow here's the miracle when that relationship ended what happened was I was using I was I was using a needle with heroin behind her back for six months she didn't know it and one day I fell asleep on the bed like this and she looked at my arms and that was it, right? Her whole family knew. They, they all found out. And they probably thought, anybody, most people think if you use a needle, you got AIDS. Yeah. And her father, her mother thought, this guy is doing this and, and having relations with my daughter. So like 
that was never, ever going to happen. Today, it's like it never happened. Wow. With my family, but last six, eight months ago, we were in family court getting some uh, residential custody of my grandson. Yeah. And I took a walk around, and Judge Redden's still in there. Yeah, still he is. practicing. Yeah. I walk into the courtroom. All these years, I wanted to thank him for the break. I sat down. He was holding court. How am I going to interrupt court? I'm not going to interrupt court. Maybe in between, yeah. I say, he has an office there. Yeah, he and does. I went into the office. I knocked on the door. They buzzed me in. And I, I asked the woman I'd like to talk to the judge. Maybe she thought maybe I was there to knife them or something. <laughs> or they can't just let anybody yeah, talk yeah, to yeah. him. And I said, I, I, I wrote a book about my experience. And he was the judge. She said, you wrote a book? I said, oh, yeah. So as soon as I said that, it got, it got 10 minutes later, he came out. And Did he to remember me. you? I, yeah, he remembered me, and he got. I got to thank him. You know? Wow, wow, Dennis Brew, imprisoned by addiction. You know, what's so funny is, we've taken this walk, and we haven't really dissected like this whole experience. So here's what's gonna happen: we're gonna close, right? You're gonna do a read, but we're gonna do a follow-up podcast with you. Okay. I'd like to have you back, and in detail, we can chop down some of the experiences in this book. I love the attention to detail that you shared. So as we get ready to close, Dennis, and um, I just wanted to, there's a question I ask all my guests. Every single guest, and when we close, we ask the same question. And the question is, considering your journey, considering where you are now, I give you the magic wand. Two wishes you have. Two wishes. What can you do? Just give you the magic wand. Two wishes, you can, any two things you want. What, what do you want to do? First wish. First wish would be that I could have been there for my daughters because I wasn't there. I was in jail, I was out of jail, that I could have possibly made a difference. And, and I guess the second wish ties into that, that maybe I could have avoided the addiction in some way to where you know, my family taught me values. I can tell. When I was using, they were out the window. As soon as I put down the drugs, they were right they come there. right back. So I wasn't capable of passing the values uh, the way they were taught to me. Because you were there. And, and just like my story where I have two brothers that are fine, and, and I was the one that went through it, I have a daughter that's, that's I don't know how, how she turned out so well, and the other daughter that struggles. All right. You know? Wow. So just to recap, your two wishes would be, one, to redo and be there for your daughters because you were on that journey. And two, to, you know, take that structure and have that established there and share that structure with your kids now. Can I just share this with you? That knowing you just now, the journey you went on, as colorful as it was, as painful as it was, has made you who you are. And as I'm sitting here from you, you mentioned one of the most profound things. You said, God had a plan in my life. Judge Redden played a role in that. So you did well, my friend. SQR Podcast, Cole Rosenberg, my guest, Dennis Brew. Thank you so much for rocking in. Amazing, amazing podcast. Yo, we're going to take a quick break, come back. Dennis is going to do a read from his book, Imprisoned by Addiction. Where, where can they get this, by the way? You can go to uh, the, the Nook or the Kindle. It's available on an e-reader. Yeah. Or you can also email me at Dennis Brew 
at ymail.com and you can get the book. We're going to have this up so you can get some of this knowledge in your life. Thank you so much. Score Rosenberg Podcast, Dennis Brew, Imprisoned by Addiction. Fascinating podcast. One.